0: Greetings, friends. and Welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon from Media Gratiæ. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm a pastor of Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley in West Sussex in the UK. And we are studying together through some of the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And today we come to one called the Holy Ghost, the Great Teacher. Now, last time, if you were listening, you may remember we uh, chewed on quite a tough sermon on election, perhaps not a typical Spurgeon sermon in its outline, though very typical in its doctrine. This week, we've been reading sermons 45 to 51. We're nearly at the end of the first volume of the new Park Street pulpit, and this is sermon 50 in that volume. The Holy Ghost, the Great Teacher, and the text is John 16, 13. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now, there are times when you might almost think you can gauge Spurgeon's mood from the introduction to his sermon. And here he seems to have been having quite heavy thoughts. This generation hath gradually and almost imperceptibly become to a great extent a godless generation. One of the diseases of the present generation of mankind is their secret but deep seated godlessness by which they have so far departed from the knowledge of God. Now sometimes Spurgeon will sound much more enthusiastic he'll be saying something like isn't it wonderful how many people God is bringing into his kingdom at this time I don't think that these are uh, confusions in his mind I don't think they are inconsistencies I think he is equally persuaded of both that it is to a great extent a godless generation and yet at the same time that God is doing a mighty work in this generation but this will help us to understand the tone of the sermon as a whole he's concerned he says even among professing christians while there is a great amount of religion there is too little god there is also little godliness much external formalism but too little inward acknowledgement of god too little living on god living with god and relying upon god He says he knows places dedicated to Jehovah in which the name of Jesus is kept in the background. The Holy Spirit is almost entirely neglected and very little is said concerning his sacred influence. Now, someone asked me about this the other day as a particular Baptist, as someone who I hope would say and and actually does stand in the same tradition as Spurgeon, Somebody asked, why is it that in churches like ours, we hear so little of the Holy Spirit? And that's a travesty. Uh, too often, we have allowed uh, the charismatics to uh, basically co-opt the Holy Spirit in his person and in his work. We've uh, accepted the, the negative implications of the language of cessationism, as if we actually do believe that the Holy Spirit has ceased to work, which is not at all what that word means. Nevertheless, in being concerned to exclude what is wrong, we have become experts in everything that the Holy Spirit is not and all the things that he doesn't do. And this is a wonderful corrective to that kind of negativity. Because we who hold to these things, who believe that the time of the apostles has ceased. Spurgeon says we're not considering ourselves intruders upon the manner of the apostles or their exclusive rights and prerogatives. But we do believe that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, a he and not an it, is powerfully at work in the world. And in the church, may God, he says, send us a Christ exalting spirit loving ministry, men who shall proclaim God, the Holy Ghost in all his offices and shall extol God, the savior as the author and finisher of our faith not neglecting that great God, the Father of his people, who before all worlds elected us in Christ his Son, justified us through his righteousness, and will inevitably preserve us and gather us together in one in the consummation of all things at the last day. Spurgeon is an earnest Trinitarian. He believes in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, and these three one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And in the best tradition of the Puritans, he believes that we enjoy communion with each of the persons distinctly, but not separate from one another. His outline is much more typical of Spurgeon. He's got five headings, but it's a much clearer sequence than the last sermon that we looked at. There's an attainment mentioned in the text, a knowledge of all truth. There's a difficulty suggested, but we need guidance into that truth. There's a person provided, when the Spirit has come, he shall guide you into all truth. There's a manner hinted at, he shall guide you into all truth. And there's a sign given as to the working of the Spirit, we may know whether he works by his guiding us into all truth, all of one thing, not truths, plural, but truth, singular. So with that very clear outline before us, let's look briefly at what Spurgeon has to say first of all about the attainment mentioned, which is a knowledge of all truth. We believe, he says, the science of Christ crucified and the judgment of the teachings of scripture to be exceedingly valuable. We think it is right that the Christian ministry should not only be arousing, but instructing, not merely awakening, but enlightening that it should appeal not only to the passions, but to the understanding. Christians have minds, says Spurgeon, and a ministry is to the whole of our humanity, not just to the affections, but also to the reason, to the intellect. And so he wants us to understand that nature itself, when sanctified by grace, gives us a strong desire to know all truth. There's an eagerness in perhaps all men but especially saved men to know the truth and God's word then will ever be to a Christian a source of great anxiety a sacred instinct within will lead him to pry into it he will seek to understand it anxiety there isn't that you worry about the word of God it is that you are concerned to know the word of God A Christian has an inward longing and anxiety after the truth, hungry and thirsty after the word of righteousness. He must and will feed on this bread of heaven or at all hazards he will leave the husks which unsound divines would offer him. Spurgeon says we turn our back upon the nonsense that men who don't speak the truth would tell us. We want to know what God has said. Furthermore, A knowledge of all truth is very essential for our comfort. We need to to know what God has said, otherwise we're going to be in some way diminished as Christians. The more we know of God's truth, all things being equal, the more comfortable you will be as a Christian. And perhaps, you know, people who, because they've latched on to some portion of truth, to the exclusion of other parts, they are continually torn up and confused. They see some things as it were written in great heavy capitals and other things seem to be relegated to the footnotes of God's word. And Spurgeon says that's a great problem because when you don't take the whole counsel of God, there'll be things then that being missing are going to have an impact upon your faith and upon your life. He says, you sometimes see in a wry smile, I think is on his face here. Melancholy congregations whose visages, whose faces are not much different from the bitter countenance of pure, poor creatures swallowing medicine because the word spoken terrifies them by its legality instead of comforting them by its grace." And you might say, I have, uh, I have been among such congregations. I have sat under such ministry. So you need the whole truth for your comfort. Furthermore, a true knowledge of all the truth will keep you out of danger. The, the grace of God is calculated to preserve you from sin. Uh, spurgeon wants you to understand that the the truth and i think here he's just hinting at the fact that uh, full orbed calvinistic doctrine to which he held holds does not open the door to sin but actually keeps you away from wickedness and to have an erroneous belief is soon to have an erroneous life if you don't believe what is true you will not live in the light of the truth Keep near God's truth, keep near His word, keep the head right and especially your heart right with regard to truth, and your feet will not go astray. Again, still under this first heading, this uh, attainment of the knowledge of all truth, it is very desirable for the usefulness which it will give us in the world at large. The usefulness it will give us in the world at large. We shouldn't be selfish, he says consider whether or not a thing will be beneficial to others. A knowledge of all truth will make you serviceable in this world. You'll be able to dispense God's truth according to uh, the, the knowledge that you have. You'll be like a, a doctor who or a, a pharmacist, a chemist who's got the full complement of medicines at your disposal and able then to dispense them as you need them. Uh, He says you don't need to mix and match some who uh, think they're Calvinists preach Calvinism the first part of the sermon and finish up with Arminianism because they think that will make them useful. Useful nonsense is all it is. A man, if he cannot be useful with the truth, cannot be useful with error. You just hold to the word of God, everything in its proper place and proportion, and it will make you useful. Well, we need to hurry on to Spurgeon's second point the difficulty suggested. Wonderful as it may be to have a knowledge of all truth, the problem is that truth is not easy to discover. We need a guide to conduct us into it. If we are to be useful as Christian men, we must be well instructed in matters of revelation. But here's the difficulty, that we cannot follow without a guide the winding paths of truth. Why do we have this problem? What is it that makes it so hard for us to grasp all the truth? First of all, says Spurgeon, because the truth is intricate, very greatly intricate. It is not an easy thing to discover. He says, I believe the most earnest student of scripture will find things in the Bible which puzzle him. However earnestly he reads it, he will see some mysteries too deep for him to understand. Uh, If you jump into the ocean... You cannot simply swim to the bottom. If you're tracing out something precious, he uses a number of examples himself. Grains of truth are like the grains of gold in the rivers of Australia. They must be shaken by the hand of patience and washed in the stream of honesty, or the fine gold will be mingled with sand. You've got to work hard in order to obtain the truth because it's hard to find and it's difficult sometimes to understand next thing is the invidiousness of error it easily steals upon us it's uh it's going to trip us up quickly it, it it catches us unawares it loves to bring us down he uses the illustration again here of uh, of a tremendous London fog where people got themselves utterly lost and he says you need to remember that the evil one whispers often this is the way walk ye in it you think you're in the right path and you're not, but Satan wants you to keep in it. It's so easy for us to be <clears throat> taken the wrong direction. And not only is error itself that way, but we are prone to go astray. That's part of our problem. We ourselves very rapidly will uh, leave the word of God. We're, uh, if not guided by grace easily lost even though there were handposts all the way to heaven so Spurgeon is emphasizing here uh, the the difficulties that we face in coming to a knowledge of all truth and some of them are within us and some of them are without us that perhaps even as Christians we still have to be on our guard we still require a guide the third place then is the person provided Who is the one who can overcome that difficulty? If we need a guide, which guide do we have? None other than God, and this God none other than a person. He, the Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. Not an influence or an emanation, but actually a person. Spurgeon is striking just as hard at some modern cults as he was as people in his own day. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He is not a force. He is not a power. He is not impersonal, but a person, not a mere influence or emanation. And this person is infallible. He is ever present. He cannot lead you astray. If you give yourself to the Holy Ghost and ask his guidance, his Spurgeon, there is no fear of wandering. And better than that, or at least I shouldn't say that, alongside of that, as good as that, he is ever present. That means that uh, you might at times read your Bible and say, oh, I-, I wish I could ask my pastor or my minister, he'd explain it, but I live a long way away and I'm not able to see him. Well, he says, you, you then try a bit of Matthew Henry, the commentator, and then Dr. Gill himself, the most consistent of commentators. He says some of these men, they, they avoid the hard passages Uh, Now whisper it softly, but if you look at the text that Spurgeon preaches on, he himself can do this sometimes. You can't go to Mr. Spurgeon any more than you can go to Mr. Scott, Mr. Henry or Mr. Gill to find the answers to all the hard questions. But, says Spurgeon, you've always got the Holy Spirit. And prayer is the key that opens the cabinets of mystery. So encouraging. And he wants you to understand the suitability of this guide because he can guide you into the truth, not just to it, but into it. That you can grasp it, that you can really get a hold of it and it ha- get its hold upon you. That even if you may be prejudiced against it, that you can be brought into it and made truly to know it and to feel it. The thing is, he says, to get inside it. A Christian should do with truth as a shell does with his shell a crab of some kind, live inside it as well as carry it on his back and bear it perpetually about with him. So the guide you have to overcome the difficulties that you face is an infallible and ever-present guide ideally suited to your need in coming to a knowledge of the truth. And then fourthly, the method suggested. He shall guide you into all truth. And here he says I need an illustration." It's like going into a dark cavern and you need a guide who comes with a lighted torch. Truth is a grand series of caverns. It is our glory to have so great and wise a conductor. Imagine that we are coming to the darkness of it. He is a light shining in the midst of us to guide us and by the light he shows us many wondrous things. Absolutely delightful here to to think of the Holy Spirit uh, casting light upon the, uh, the the truth of God. The uh, you think again of the invidiousness, the unpleasantness, the cruelness and, and, and nastiness of sin, the darkness of our own minds, the, the intricacies of truth. But the Holy Spirit can illuminate the truth. He can make us to see. And Spurgeon says he can do this by three ways. First of all, by suggesting it. Secondly, by directing us into it. And thirdly, by illuminating it. The first one is suggestion. It is not a fancy, he says, that angels whisper into our ears and that devils do the same. Both good and evil spirits hold converse with men and some of us have known it. We perhaps too quickly... And again, it goes back to what we said in the introduction. Perhaps we have lost our supernaturalism with regard to the things that we believe. Spurgeon has not done that. And he is persuaded that the spirit speaks in men's ears, sometimes in the darkness of the night. In ages gone by, he spoke in dreams and visions, but now he speaks by his word. There's interesting that Spurgeon still emphasizes that the spirit speaks by his word it's always says Spurgeon in and from the scriptures when the the holy spirit impresses divine truth upon your soul You've not been reading, he says, or studying the scripture, but a text came across your mind and you couldn't help it, though you even put it down, it was like a cork in the water, would swim up again to the top of your mind. Spurgeon wants you to be sensitive to those times when the word of God comes to your mind. He says that could be the suggestion of the Holy Spirit, not some strange a new revelation, but the Spirit imprinting the truth upon you, perhaps dredging something up from your memory or prompting you to recollect something he does not say a word perhaps but he walks into a passage himself and you follow him so the spirit suggests a thought and your heart follows it up it's the the instruction of the holy spirit sometimes by direction Time after time you've commenced a meditation on a certain doctrine and unaccountably you were gradually led away into another and you saw how one doctrine leaned on another as is is the case with the stones in the arch of a bridge all hanging on the keystone of Jesus Christ crucified. You, You are meditating and you're doing so in dependence on the spirit of God and as you think The Holy Spirit gently and graciously, but firmly prompts you so that your mind is led down avenues of truth in connection with that which you've been considering, which you might never have gone down yourself. And then illumination. The Spirit illuminates the Bible and he's riffing off this idea of a of a decorated printing of the Bible. And he says, you need a Bible that's illuminated by the Holy Spirit. You may read to all eternity and never learn anything by it unless it's illuminated by the Spirit. And then the words shine forth like stars. The book seems made of gold leaf. Every single letter glitters like a diamond. It's a blessed thing to read an illuminated Bible lit up by the radiance of the Holy Ghost. He's saying here that the Spirit helps our understanding, that uh, he opens our eyes to behold marvelous things from God's law. And we pr- should pray then that the Spirit would illuminate the Bible for us. We pray, shine upon it, for I cannot read it to profit unless you enlighten me. What a wonderfully sweet and sensitive understanding of the operations of the Spirit in and with the Word upon the human heart that as we seek truth and pursue truth, God in his mercy, the Spirit of God, is pleased to lead us into all truth let's let's remember that as we study the bible for ourselves whether we are reading it morning by morning seeking to prepare a message a sermon whatever it may be that we need the holy spirit and the last thing he says is an evidence how do you know whether or not you're enlightened by the holy spirit's influence and led into all truth And he says you may know it by its unity all truth And secondly, by its universality, all truth. How do you know if a minister has the Holy Ghost in him or not? In the first place, by the constant unity of his testimony. A man cannot be enlightened by the Holy Spirit who preaches yea and nay. The Spirit never says one thing at one time and another thing at another time. So there's consistency in the ministry. He's not uh, providing theories truth he's not flipping from one party or school to another but he knows what he believes and he speaks the word of God so we may rest assured of this until we get rid of our Lindsey Woolsey doctrine and cease to sow mingled seed we shall not have a blessing you can't be a Calvinist and an Arminian you can't be a Baptist and a pedo you've got to be one thing or the other and you may know it too, he says, by its universality. It, it, it's, it covers everything. Some truths lie long in the heart before they really come out and make themselves appear so that we can speak of them as that which we know and testify of what we have seen. But over time, the Spirit will lead us into all truth. It's not a, a partial experience that as the spirit instructs us more and more of God's word will become clearer to us so that we understand it more and more clearly. So he says practical inferences and with these he'll close with reference to the script Christian who is afraid of his own ignorance. Remember he says that the Holy Spirit can teach you. He can teach anyone, however illiterate or uninstructed you might be. I have known some men who were almost idiots before conversion. And that's not dismissive language. That's uh, the language of Spurgeon's time for those who are mentally infirm, who who have uh, perhaps severe learning difficulties. But they afterwards had their faculties wonderfully developed. Uh, Perhaps I can just uh, back that up from my own experience. We had a a man who was a member of the church, which I served for for a long time. He had been born with uh, epilepsy, with severe learning difficulties, uh, autistic Asperger's syndrome. The poor man had had so many issues uh, in terms of his intellectual capacity. And when uh, we first met him, it was my father who first began to tell him the gospel. Uh, We weren't even sure if he could speak, let alone read. He just used to grunt in answer to questions. But as we began to talk with him, it became clearer that he did have some small capacity. Eventually, God was pleased to save him from his sins and he went on faithfully in the church with, it should be said, a number of problems, many of them relating to his condition, for many years. When my dear brother died and when I was clearing out his home, he had amassed something of a library. In his library was a copy of the Battles translation of Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And this dear man had read every page and made notes of it. Now, did he understand everything he read? No. But there are many people who might have looked down their noses at that man and said how how much cleverer they were than him who would never have gone near some of the books that that man read. His faculties were wonderfully developed under the influence of the Spirit of God. Let that be an encouragement to us when we find ourselves dull and slow and think that we're, we're not real scholars, we're not real readers, we're not this or the other. The Holy Spirit can teach us. Another inference. Whenever any of our brothers don't understand the truth... Let's take a hint, he says, says Spurgeon, as to the best way of dealing with them. Not first and foremost arguing with them. That tends to produce no good, but to pray for them. He says, whether it's, uh, he takes one example, don't quarrel with our pedo-baptist friends. Pray for them that the God of truth may lead them to see the true doctrine. He's got his tongue in his cheek, perhaps a little bit, but he believes that baptism is required that believers baptism is required in the word of God and that there is no argument for infant baptism he says pray then whether it's that or anything else make prayer to the spirit your first concern that for yourself and for your brother our eyes may be opened and lastly we speak to some of you who know nothing about the spirit of truth nor about the truth itself the last application is for those who are still in darkness. Perhaps even some who say, we're quite glad to be in darkness. We are happily indifferent. And he says, the confidence that we have is that the Holy Spirit can lead you into truth. We're praying for it and we're urging you to come to Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful way to finish this beautiful sermon. It really is Uh, again especially in comparison with some of the ones we've looked at more recently just a delightfully positive presentation of the person and the work of the spirit in the heart of every true believer and the prospects the encouragements the joys the expectations that come from knowing that we have one who can guide us into all truth well may God do that for each and every one of us And may he remind us by this study of the helper that we have, that we may come to know Christ and all truth in him. You have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. If you like the podcast, please subscribe or write a review on your favorite podcast app. If you want to hear more like this, visit mediagratii.org To find my word in season devotions, John Snyder's Behold Your God podcast or Andy Christofides, A Ransom for Many.